0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good start to the month of March so far, considering that we are into the first day of um, March. And before we know it, in 16 days from from now, it'll be St. Patrick's Day. Of course, I know I shouldn't be thinking that far out, but of course, when I think of the month of March, I tend to think of uh, St. Patty's Day. I don't know why I, I do, but that's just... Uh, that's just usually the big thing that comes to my mind and of course march madness with basketball um nca basketball that is i mean how can one forget march madness um there's a reason for it and the good news is that for all of you march madness fans out there we will be having an nca tournament this year compared to last year compared to last year but uh, there were obviously good reasons for why it was not uh, held a year ago But here we are now uh, into part three of uh, Bruce Chadwick's I Am Murdered, George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and the Killing That Shocked a New Nation. Part three is going to be uh, discussing um, a variety of um, unique uh, matters, most notably about the uh, forensics nightmare, as well as um, the autopsy. So we're going to be discussing two parts of uh, part three, or let alone two sections, I should say, two key sections. Uh, The first will be the Forensics Nightmare Part 1, but I will also admit to you that um, while I will be discussing the first part of um, Part 3 being the Forensics Nightmare, I won't be able to complete it all in one podcast session. So the next time I'm on the air with you all, I will be discussing the second part of Part 1 being the Forensics Nightmare. So here we go uh, with our uh, 1st leadoff question. Now, before I actually officially begin with the first lead-off question, many of you all recall from earlier podcasts about uh, arsenic. That's what um, was uh, put into uh, the coffee that Mr. George With, along with his um, servant Lydia Broadnax and the 16-year-old protege student Michael Brown, consumed being uh, coffee, but little did they know that. Mr. Wythe's grandnephew, George With Sweeney, had poisoned them all, all in the name of um, wanting to uh, ensure that his um, rightful inheritance would not be uh, taken from him, given that um, if Michael Brown and uh, Lydia Broadnax were to pass away before him, before George With Sweeney himself, that uh, Sweeney would be entitled to his share of the estate and if Sweeney died before them, that uh Miss and Michael Brown would be entitled to their equal share of uh of with's estate, so obviously George with Sweeney has lots of problems, as we all know, and his gambling did not help out, and it's just bad enough that his gambling was causing the issues, but his gambling led him to steal from uh his great uncle it also led him to forge checks. And uh, we will talk more about that once the trial gets underway. But my uh, lead-off question to you all regarding uh, arsenic is the following. Is arsenic a colorless substance? What I mean by colorless substance is that um, it's invisible. You know, when you uh, dispense the material into a a liquid, in this case like a liquid beverage, once it's um, dispensed in to or uh, dispersed into the beverage you can't you can no longer see it so the answer is yes arsenic is in fact a colorless substance it's a potent to where once it has entered a person's body particles or fragments it, the substance itself can take over any or all parts or I should say organs including one's bloodstream so this is very this is a very lethal substance that um can do significant damage to uh one's um inside within a short uh matter of time and from an earlier podcast uh, I had described to you all how uh when Mr. With consumed his coffee that he was almost left in a uh paralytic state of shock, in other words, he couldn't move his body he had difficulty breathing. Uh, it was almost as if um, a force from outside that he had no control over ultimately took over his body. It, I still find it a miracle that he even survived the the incident at that point on May 25th of 1806 that somehow he still managed, after he had regained consciousness, to get down the stairs and um, tell Lydia Broadnax that he had been murdered. He tried to tell Michael Brown the same thing, but obviously Michael Brown was in a very uh, bad state of, um, he was very unconscious, let's put it that way to you all. The, and remember folks, those were the first words, because that's going to be my next question. Before George Wythe died, did he insist on being operated, or let alone examined? Yes. He went as far as pointing to his chest by saying, cut me, aka, I am murdered. In other words, he knew that he had been murdered. Of course, he had not died, but he knew that somebody was out to get him, that somebody wanted him dead. And that was none other than his grandnephew. So if he is already telling the doctors, as he's laying there dying, that he if he's got enough courage to tell them, hey, cut me, that means, folks, that he knows something that the doctors don't know. In other words, the doctors know he's not well, but what did the doctors insist early on, back from part one, they were convinced he had cholera. You know, cholera obviously is brought on by consuming bad water or eating vegetables or fruits that have not been rinsed with clean water. Well, we all know George With had access to clean water. What did he have that most people could not afford during this day and time? A well. Basically, by well water is filtered water. Consuming water from um, what you call water from, uh, if you didn't live in Shaco Hill, the water you got was pretty much bad water. Water that was not treated. Water that um, could cause one to have cholera, but also cause one to um, to die. Because after all, for for a long period of time, most people did not consume water because it was unsafe to drink. That's why many people in colonial times consumed um, alcohol like beer and cider, uh, rum, gin and tonic as a means of um, a safer way of uh, consuming a beverage. So um, the autopsy that would be performed on George Wythe shortly after he passed away this autopsy garnered major attention so i'm going to uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the history behind autopsies you know when people think of autopsies they often think of modern day times where they've been performed but i'm sure many of you all would be surprised to know that the first official autopsy took place back in the year 44 BC, and it involved a key political, a key public political person whom many of us should know. Uh, of course, I, I've known about this person for a long time. I learned a great deal about him when I took uh, Latin high school. But his name was Julius Caesar, a Roman dictator, a very, very brutal dictator, to say the least. Well, what happened to him? Well, he was assassinated in the year 44 B.C. by friends and allies. What do you mean by friends? Why would his friends want to assassinate him? Well, one man, whom was a very dear friend of Caesar's, was in on this. These, uh, this coalition was very um, worried about what would happen to Rome due to the fact that caesar already himself already had power as it was but they were afraid of of what he could acquire down the road in terms of po- more power that would become um a danger to the um to the people of rome if his uh, power alone did not go um if the po- if his reign of power did not um what we call get put in check so a man named Brutus, who was his be- who was one of his dear friends, was a part of the uh, coalition that led to the assassination of Julius Caesar. Brutus was the, the I believe was the last person who attacked him. And Caesar himself was known to have said the following: Et tu, Brute? meaning you too, Brutus. In other words, Brutus, you were in on this as well. He was. Brutus was in on it because he loved Rome. And he didn't want to see Rome fall into the hands of a corrupt man like Julius Caesar. So the autopsy was ordered by the Senate. And the report revealed that Caesar was stabbed 23 times, including the fatal wound through his heart. And believe it or not, the ancient Egyptians were the first to perform uh, general body dissections during the reign of Pharaoh Ptolemy I, so we should be reminded folks that autopsies are something that's nothing new. They have been around since the beginning of time. But while yes they have been around for a long time, autopsies have not been performed on a regular basis. That leads me that's that leads me to my next question. Which religious sect or church body went about prohibiting autopsies from being conducted for about um almost, uh, for almost 1,200 years, the Roman Catholic Church. Well, remember, folks, the Roman Catholic Church was one of the most powerful institutions in its time before the Protestant Reformation occurred, and if you weren't Catholic, you were persecuted, and the Catholic Church was very successful at being able to cover up um, murders and deaths. So, if you were successful enough to where you could cover up a murder and a death, what would have been the last thing you would have wanted to have allowed? An autopsy. How come? Well, the longer the autopsy goes on, the greater uh, the suspicion that the public has over who might have really been behind the murder itself. But, over time, things do start to change come the 15th century when the Catholic Church as a greater institution, starts allowing students in medical schools to dissect bodies along with studying key body organs. So I think the Catholic Church is smart enough now to realize that, okay, maybe we need to start, you know, being a little bit more flexible. Um, Times are changing. You know, people are interested in medicine. There are those who want to become doctors. They want to learn more about how the body uh functions you know what causes the heart to do things that it normally should not be doing what causes one's um organs not to function you know we do need to know how the body in general works you know think about this you know in medicine in today's time we know a lot more now about uh certain forms of cancer than we did say 20 years ago and 10 years from now we're going to probably learn some learn things about uh, certain forms of forms of cancer that we don't even still know to this day. So the Catholic Church is finally realizing that hey, look, in order to get a better understanding of how the body functions, people need to learn. People need to be able to have a right to start learning this, learning how to go about um, conducting procedures which can perhaps save the lives of those who are dependent upon people like doctors. Now, what is unique about the year 1590? Well, in the year 1590, the first forensics autopsy was performed by medical professors in determining whether poison was the cause of death to 28-year-old Count Jacob III of Baden, Austria. And it turns out that they were able to uh, determine that this fellow was... um, um, died from um, died from means of being poisoned now as as we move into the eighteenth century autopsies are becoming more prevalent and they are becoming all the more popular popular in medical schools throughout the world so we've really evolved significantly i would say starting in the fifteenth century and now going into the eighteenth century we have seen a very um major um Radical transformation and uh, people's ability to learn more about the body, the human body, people's ability to understand where organs are located in one's body, and also how to go about uh, trying to save people's lives. You know, we may not have had the most sophisticated of technology back then, but we still had a right to learn uh, how uh, organs function just like we do today, I mean, we obviously know that one can't live without a liver. Uh, on the other hand, are there such things as liver transplants and heart transplants? Absolutely. Unfortunately, they were not around in the 15th century. But of course, people living in the 15th century, if they knew what was available now today in terms of uh, kidney trans—we uh, call it organ transplants, like a kidney transplant, um, liver or heart—they would be in awe of that stuff. On the other hand, there are hundreds and hundreds of people who more often than not are on the waiting list for organs for organ donations or to um, receive a match from another um, organ donor and sadly, there are many people who don't live to see who don't live to see um, this reality come true in other words, just because you're on the list to receive a um an organ transplant, it doesn't automatically mean that you will get one. I'm not trying to sound um, ignorant or hateful, but sadly that is uh, a reality sometimes in life where people lose their fight to um, cancer or they lose their fight to an illness that requires an organ transplant and they're sadly not able to receive it in enough time. So um, what European University was considered to be the world's best for studies involving anatomy. I remember, folks, what anatomy is. We're uh, learning about dissecting the body and finding out where the organs are located and so forth. But the best European university that was known for its studies involving anatomy was Scotland's University of Edinburgh. Edinburgh is spelled E-D-I-N-B-U-R-G-H. This medical school was started in 1726, and how ironic that was the same year George Wythe himself was born. Benjamin Franklin would have been 20 years old when the University of Edinburgh was established. Remember, folks, uh, Benjamin Franklin was the oldest of our forefathers. Uh, He was born in 1706. Um, Some of our other forefathers were born in the years after 1706, but Benjamin Franklin stands out as being the oldest. Now, I will tell you this. Uh, many of our of the anatomy classes and autopsy, autopsy workshops in America's colleges and universities based their same practices that were established at Edinburgh. And about 30, 35% of all the U.S. physicians in America had trained or studied at Edinburgh and ironically more than half of virginia's physicians trained there so it seems like edinburgh university really is the place to go but we also must keep in mind too that um medical schools back then weren't like they are today obviously in today's modern times you have far more medical school options for the in the united states in terms of colleges and universities having medical schools even overseas as well, uh, whether it's in Europe or elsewhere around the world, there are far more nations now that, have, that offer medical schools from um, international. But we must keep in mind that when our forefathers were alive, there were very few options in terms of getting access to a uh, top-flight medical school. Now, were doctors James McClurg, James McCall, and William Fauci Did all three of these men study medicine at the University of Edinburgh? Yes. Dr. McClurg, for example, was considered to be one of the world's top physicians. I will mention this right now that, well, yes, and I'm going to talk a little bit more here soon about Dr. McClurg's accomplishments, but I should also point out, too, that sometimes just because one might be one of the world's top physicians, it doesn't automatically mean that that they are um, well-trained in other um, aspects of medicine. So let's keep that in mind um, as we move along, because I will uh, bring this back up here um, momentarily. At the time of George Wythe's death in 1806, only six medical colleges existed throughout the entire United States. Six. Does anybody know what uh, six schools existed in terms of medical? Um, medical. They are the following. Uh, Penn University's medical school in Philadelphia. That makes practical sense because Philadelphia is still considered to be the largest um, city in the United States. Even in 1787, when the uh, Constitution was signed... There were about 4 million people living in Philadelphia. Or actually, I take about 40,000. Uh, there were about 4 million people living in the United States, but 40,000 reside in Phila- resided in Philadelphia alone. So that I could see how for Philadelphia it would make practical sense to have a medical school there. King's College, which is now known as Columbia University in New York, had one. Then you had um, other... Um, Ivy League schools like Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, and then there's a school in Kentucky, transylvania University So think about this folks: five of the six medical colleges that had um, med schools are Ivy League schools, so that means right away there that about um, eighty just over eighty percent of the schools are up uh, are up north, the only one that is it's not really even considered the South, but it's in the new Western frontier, being Kentucky, Transylvania University. That's the only one, the only other viable option. Now, over time, uh, many private and uh, smaller schools in the United States were founded by American doctors who studied abroad. So this way, over time, uh, there will be greater opportunities for students who want to become doctors to have the chance to study um, w- study all the necessary courses and even perhaps apprentice to someone who is already a um, licensed doctor. Were the smaller schools in the United States that fell under second-tier status have the same quality versus European universities like Edinburgh. I will admit this, folks, that the doctors who founded, or let alone established, the independent medical schools, they really were more interested in making money. In other words, they were more interested in making a profit off of establishing these schools. The second-tier schools didn't provide opportunities for students to get hands-on experiences with performing autopsies to dissections. So really, the only advantage that the second-tier medical schools provided were 14 weeks of study and curriculums that revolved around lectures. While lectures are great, at the same time, the standards are also very low. And many students came away learning little information. So in other words, they may have... Learned information that required rote memorization, but they never had the chance to actually look at a um at a human body. They never had a chance to actually see for themselves where organs were located in, in the body. If they really, if they could have had the opportunity, then yes, they could have gone to Europe, but at the same time, we must keep in mind that very few families could have afforded to have sent their, um, most notably, their sons to Europe to study medicine. That was only for the most uh, well-to-do of uh, families. You know, it's interesting enough that um, 14 weeks of study in, the, in that day and time could allow one to eventually become a doctor, on the other hand, there was an alternative route. To me, this probably would have been the safer route. It may not have guaranteed anything um, in terms of what could would would be the uh, original uh, primary option. But the alternate route behind becoming a doctor was to apprentice was to apprentice or intern under an actual one for five to seven years. I think it's fair to say that if one d- went this route that they would have been able to have uh, seen for themselves firsthand how to um, open up a wound and then, then, uh, what do you call it, stitch one's um, wound um, back up to where they would be able to have uh, put bandage wrap around it um, or use what would be gauze of 18th century style. Uh, They would have also witnessed firsthand what would have been required to have... um, to have uh, calmed someone's nerves before having to perform an operation. Now, (laughs) we all know back in 18th century times, uh, there was no such thing as anesthetics. On the other hand, though, I will have to admit that probably most people back then were probably much more um, resilient and had a higher um, tolerance for pain compared to many people in today's uh, times. What I do know is that when my wife and I uh, went to Williamsburg one time a few years back, we were told that um, at the apothecary there that the first anesthetics were introduced in the 19th century. They would come about after George Wythe has passed away but one of the first anesthetics was known as a uh, chloroform. I don't know a whole lot about it. All I just remember uh, the docents there telling us was that uh, chloroform was one of the first um, waves of anesthetics to be introduced. But I can't imagine, though, um, in the 18th century, and even into a good part of the 19th century, no modern-day anesthetics, and all of a sudden you need to have um, part of your leg amputated, or um, they need to... Um, they need to do something with your arm uh to where they're going to actually go in and saw part saw saw some of your skin off and here you are actually alive and witnessing it happen i mean <laughs> i can't imagine that it's a scary thought and of course they really had no way of being able to sterilize the equipment as well so very um what, what would I say? Very um, unpleasant to think of, but hey, those people didn't know any better back then, and we must keep in mind, too, that the only time you went to actually see a doctor was if it were a last resort when all else had failed. In other words, if you went to see a doctor, it, might, it probably could have meant a matter of life and death. Here's a little humor here real quick. I'm sure many of you all remember the movie uh, Tommy Boy with the late Chris Farley and David Spade that was um, that came out about 25 years ago. I remember when uh, David, in the movie David Spade goes to pick up Chris Farley from the airport, and Chris Farley says to David Spade, did you hear that I finally graduated from college? And David Spade said, you know, just a shade under a decade. Chris Farley's response is, A lot of people go to college for seven years. David Spade says, I know, they're called doctors. Well, there you have it, folks. The alternate route would have been, in terms of becoming a doctor, was to apprentice under an actual doctor for five to seven years. So it is fair to say that, yes, uh, a lot of people do go to college for seven years. But when when I think of people going to school for seven years, I think of doctors. After all, they have to... um, study. Um, they go, what, four years? They do four years um, in med school, and then they have X number of years with residency. So the bottom line is is that while they may not be assigned to one person going to medical school and doing your residency, that might as well be the equivalent of a, of an apprenticeship. Now, did various people whom held other jobs in towns or villages serve the role was being the town's doctor or the the community doctor, yes, you had ministers, pharmacists, to midwives who were obviously women whom delivered babies, and you had people as high up like Governor John Winthrop Jr. of Connecticut who served as a physician, so remember folks being a doc if one was a doctor, it didn't mean that. He was the only person who could have um, sole control over tending to uh, the sick. Think about this too, folks. Ministers and pharmacists, they had to, they played an equal part as well. Now, in 1806, the year of George Wythe's death, only 13% of all U.S. doctors were trained at a formal medical school in the United States or in Europe. 13% is a very small number. On the other hand, Maybe that's better than nothing, but just keep in mind, folks, 13% is not the most glamorous figure, in large part because the, the public's view of apprentice doctors, including doctors whom are already uh, licensed in their profession, whom attended U.S. medical schools, the public's view is not high. Sadly, most doctors did not have a whole lot of knowledge behind medicine, Many patients were told to rest, eat foods that lacked zest, in other words, foods that were very bland, along with taking laxatives for upset stomachs. But if that was hard enough, I think the the primary reason in the end why many in the public had such a low view towards apprentice doctors had to do with the fact that when it came to actually seeing a doctor, what did many doctors do? They charged their um, clients for a very high price. And the patients would be very um, leery of wanting to pay the bill back. Why? Because they, in their eyes, the doctor's performance was subpar. In other words, it did not meet the minimum criteria of good performance, and it didn't even come close to meeting or exceeding expectations. So I could see how People would have been hesitant to go see a doctor all the time. They would have gone when it, was only, when it was a last resort, but it didn't automatically guarantee that when you went as a last resort that you might even come home alive. So, let's learn a little bit about the three men whom are going to be performing the autopsy on George Wythe. we've We've learned a fair amount about them so far, but I think we really need to learn more. Because as the trial goes along, as the trial begins, and as we get into the next part of um, part one, with or part three, but part one of the forensics nightmare, and then into the autopsy, the, the doctor's names are going to really resurface all the more. That is Dr. James McClurg, James McCall, and William Fauci. We've already established that they all three of them are University of Edinburgh graduates, which is a good advantage. But let's start off with Dr. James McClurg. He's born in 1746. That means uh, he's three years younger than, say, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, He's 20 years younger than George Wythe. He is born in uh, Hampton, Virginia. Of course, where George Wythe hailed hailed from was Chesterville, which is now Hampton. He was educated at William & Mary and graduated in 1762. Okay, we'll get this folks. If he was born in seventeen forty six and graduated in seventeen sixty two that means he was sixteen years old. Maybe it's fair to say that he might have been like the Doogie Hauser of his time. For those of you who weren't familiar with but with the uh, Doogie Hauser, that was a television show that came on in the late nineteen eighties into the early nineties uh Neil Patrick Harris was a young prodigy who um became a doctor. Um, right, even before he uh, went off to college. Apparently he was so gifted that um, he knew how to perform on um, on people. So I guess Dr. McClurg might as well have been a, a young prodigy of his time or the equivalent of a Doogie Hauser. After William and Mary, uh, Dr. McClurg spent eight years training as a physician at Edinburgh where administrators considered him to be one of the top students can't go wrong there and after edinburgh dr mcclurg sets up practices in london and paris and this also included writing articles for many european medical journals well this guy is at the top of his game i mean to be able to write um, articles for medical journals that is a very very distinguished honor unto itself and i can give you an example here um Shortly about um, Doctor um, McClurg's um, an example of a um, book that he published and how uh, highly regarded um, it was by many by many others in the medical uh, community. In 1779, he becomes William and Mary's professor of anatomy and medicine. That was also the same year that Thomas Jefferson um, reformed um, William and Mary in terms of uh, consolidating academical departments. You know, he was governor at this time, uh, but he gives Dr. McClurg uh, the professorship of anatomy and medicine. He becomes so well-known in Virginia to where people throughout the state come to him for proper diagnosis and uh, treatment services. So if you have a loved one who is sick, you're no, you already know right away who you're going to be taking that loved one to, Dr. McClurg. He he published articles in medical journals as well as books, which was prestigious considering very few doctors had this luxurious honor. He wrote a book that was titled the the following, Experiments upon the Human Bile and Reflections on the Biliary Secretions. I know that doesn't sound pleasant, but it was a book that revolved around stomach bile and how it could cause everything from discomfort to death the book itself led McClurg to become the world's leading expert on bile now i'm going to talk more about bile in another uh podcast um episode so this way um you all will get you all my listeners will get a a better understanding of what bile is because it does have um Extreme significance behind um, decisions that were made from the doctors, as to what they thought was truly responsible, or what what they truly thought was the cause of Mister With's death. Of course, I myself firmly do believe that Mister With was poisoned. I I still don't understand why the doctors were baffled early on, and were led to believe that he was uh, the victim of cholera. They should have known that he had a, that he had a well. And that and they should have known that by him having a well that his water was filtered, meaning that 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 the clean water he had would have been able to have killed off any germs on fruits and vegetables um, it would have prevented him from it would have allowed him to consume the water as well as um using the water to clean himself with each morning when he uh took a, a bucket of um Ice water and uh, doused it over his head. Over his head, um, in other words, to get whatever was needed off of his uh, hair. But there again, folks, you know, people will sometimes um, do anything to uh, sometimes distort the the real truth. So I I still do hope that these doctors will come to their senses and maybe realize that hey, the guy doesn't live in a bad neighborhood. He has access to good water, but he's not the victim of cholera. He's got to be the victim of something else, something else that um, that is a problem, but something that should have come as a total shock considering that there was nobody in their eyes that w- would have wanted to have done harm to Mr. With. But, sadly, once again, there are some people who simply are too um, proud to want to admit the real truth behind what, in fact, did happen. So, now we're going to be uh, moving on to Dr. James McCall. He is the nephew of Dr. McClurg. Why is Dr. McCall important? Well, he was self-raised by his uncle, James And in 1792, he began a family medical dynasty that lasted five generations. He was known for his role in helping inoculate many poor families whose lives otherwise might have been lost to smallpox epidemics in Richmond during the years of 1794 and 1802. Well, this is very admirable. Um, You know, I mentioned early on that there were many in the community, and not just in uh, Richmond, but in general, who truly did believe that um, that diseases, even in the medical profession at this time, folks, there were many who believed that diseases were brought on by those who were from the destitute and poor um, ranking uh, class statuses of society. And while unfortunate as that may seem, I think it's amazing that Dr. McCall wasn't afraid to go out of his way and inoculate those who were poor. So that they could still um, live a good life to their fullest and still somehow contribute to society. And had he not done anything for these poor families, then yes, thousands of lives might have been lost, all in the name of being ignorant. So thank heavens that Dr. McCall is showing compassion. I must point out, too, that in his, that history has shown that though even in um, times of medical crises or even in, um, what do you call it, outbreaks involving disease, most notably the bubonic plague from the medieval times, I mentioned it before, but I'll say it again, there were many in Europe who were convinced that the Jews were responsible for uh, bringing on the Black Death, and sadly, uh, there were many people of Jewish faith who lost their lives given that the, uh, those of non-Jewish faith had it out for, um, for the Jews because they felt that they were responsible for bringing um, misery to those whom um, didn't ask for it. So the bottom line is, folks, is that there are those, even in today's world, who will go so far as to being convinced that, um, that people of uh, an inferior race or ethnic group are sometimes responsible for doing things when, when we know for a fact that um, that um, ethnic or people of any ethnicity would not deliberately um, bring about um, harm to where people's lives were lost, all in the name of uh, disease. Now the other um, doctor is Dr. William Fauci, who was born in 1749 in Virginia's northern neck. Besides studying medicine, he too, like Dr. McClurg, became involved in local and state politics. Dr. Fauci was elected Richmond's first mayor in 1782, and like Dr. McCall, he helped save lives of thousands of people during the 1800 smallpox epidemic in Richmond, and believe it or not, many of these people had not been inoculated a few years earlier when a previous epidemic took place. So... You know, these three men are really doing a lot of good things, okay? And if they're doing a lot of good things, we would certainly want them to be able to perform an autopsy that would um, prove to the public that George Wythe, in fact, had been poisoned. We would want them to give the public assurance that they know how to do their job and that they are not going to um, go behind the public's back and distort the truth to where the public would feel betrayed. That's what we would hope, but sometimes we never know for sure what's going on in the minds of those whom are of higher-end status, most notably in a uh, profession like the medical profession at this day and time. Now, as successful as Dr. McClurg had become... Did he have weaknesses? Well, for starters, I mean, none of us are perfect. I mean, we all have flaws. But let me ask you this, folks. Yes, he did have weaknesses. But did these weaknesses involve the profession he practiced being that of medicine? Yes. For starters, he truly believed that if one uh, was surrounded by clean air along with maintaining good healthy eating habits that any individual would have would have better remedies they, they they basically he felt that if one was surrounded by good air along with healthy eating habits that they were seen as better remedies for preventing all illnesses so in other words he truly felt, felt that if you were not exposed to, bad germ, to germs or uh, bad air, that you could live a, a life without any kind of uh, medical hardship. Well, I do know this for a fact. Yes, you could take care of yourself all you want, but it doesn't mean that something still can't happen to you. In other words, I've seen commercials on television um, there was one commercial for Bayer a while back, and it's the the fellas in the uh, narrating the commercial said this: a heart attack doesn't care how how good of shape you're in. Um, it was basically his way of saying, yes, you could take all you could take good care of yourself. You can exercise, eat right, do everything there is right to stay in good shape, but you could still sadly have a heart attack. And in some cases, you know, I've heard of stories where people have died. And more often than not, it's usually been uh, due to genetic uh, defects that the person, him or herself, could have had. But, this is, but Dr. McClurg was convinced that, yes, if you had good eating habits and you um, were surrounded by good air, that they were all the better remedies for preventing illnesses. He also believed that people whom were immoral were automatically victims of epidemics. So, in other words, people who did not take good care of themselves, people who remained in a state of des. people who remained destitute and poor, in his eyes, were responsible for bringing about bad uh, omens to those who were opposite. I would hate to say that this is a uh, bad example on his part of being very ignorant. But his biggest problem was his personal ego. In other words, he was egotistical. He thought about himself. He didn't think about the well-being of other people, and in some instances, maybe that could have meant his patients and perhaps other uh, staff members he might have been around. He became convinced that he was the world's best medical expert through books and journal articles he published. He went as far as ridiculing doctors whom weren't willing to listen to criticism and from experience. Okay, yes, if you want to ridicule others for not wanting to listen to criticism, that's fine. But would you say that it's that it's even worse if you become that same person? In other words, you can ridicule others all you want, but if you make the same mistakes, then to me, you are just as guilty, or let alone you are engaging in what's called hypocrisy. So Dr. McClurg would jump down everyone else's throat when it came to others directly criticizing him. He had little regard towards the doctors whose opinions differed from his. Now, to me, that is very uncomfortable, and it's also a red flag, because, you know, he's going to be leading the autopsy on George With If he's going to have this kind of an attitude... Is there a good likelihood that that his egotistical attitude could really alter his decision-making behind what he believes is ultimately the primary cause of George Wythe's death? Absolutely. So, when it came to uh, his arrogance would be present in the autopsy room where he would go about opening up George Wythe's body and determine how his friend of 40 years had died in his eyes. So in other words, yes, he had known George Wythe for about 40 years. That's a long time to have known someone, folks. You know, you would think after you've known someone for 40 years and you have a very strong friendship that perhaps you uh, would want to see to it that, that, uh, that this friend of yours would um, be treated properly and even if he died, that if you were to be performing his autopsy that you would want to give him the due respect that he deserves? Absolutely. Absolutely. But at the same time, how can um, how can you be honest with yourself if you're judging everyone else? And how can you be honest with yourself when you don't like others questioning your findings? You know, even George With himself told the doctors before he died, "Hey, cut me, I murdered." In other words, they kind of they kind of. Um, scoffed at him. Doctor McClurg even said to said, "What does George With know about medicine? The guy's a lawyer. He doesn't know anything about anatomy." Well, remember this. Well, remember this, folks. Uh, okay, George With may not have been a doctor, but after all, he was a, a product of the Enlightenment and when he was teaching law at William and Mary, and when he was mentoring men like Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, James Madison, Henry Clay, John Marshall, uh, William Munford, who delivered George Wythe's eulogy, he wasn't just teaching these men about law. He was teaching them about useful knowledge. He wanted to know, for example, why certain organs of the body functioned the way they did. So the bottom line is this, folks. George Wythe was teaching his students more than just uh, reading out of a law book and uh, conducting moot court and legislative sessions. George Wythe knew more than what the medical profession might have even given him credit for. So it's one thing for a... um, a leading doctor to go about performing an autopsy on someone who's of high-profile status like Mr. George With himself. But that doesn't mean that Dr. McClurg is going to give George With the due respect that maybe he deserves. In other words, who's to say that he might, if he were to testify at the trial, which he will, but who's to say if, when he goes before the stand that he might even give the lead prosecutor, Mr. William Norburn-Nicholas, the exact information that he needs in order to be able to prove to the jury that George With Sweeney is guilty. Well, folks, we've covered a lot of ground, and um, when I'm back on the air again with you all next, we're going to be discussing um, the second part of of this uh, forensics investigation. Well, thank you for listening as always, and uh, I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Uh, Thank you once again, and uh, continue to stay safe.